Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. Because my, my father was murdered and my three brothers were already murdered. And every day I thought, I didn't know I was going to survive. So until that happened to me, rape really, it was one of the worst things during the genocide that happened to me. And of course, I was painful to see my, my, my family and all that. But when he added it to being assaulted and raped, and as a teenager, I thought, Maybe there's no point for me to be alive. And I don't know if I really need to be alive. For me, because I was young, losing people, I never thought I was going to be able to, after surviving the genocide, being able to function again, be happy and struggling with the trauma of that. So during the genocide, I never really hoped to be alive. I never wanted it to be alive. When the genocide happening after being raped. So it was after the genocide, that's when I felt maybe gradually to be able to love myself again. But in the genocide, I hoped probably I would die like everybody else. Hi there, it's Light Watkins bringing you another story behind the story of someone who is out in the world helping and inspiring people through sharing her harrowing tale of survival. Her name is Console Nishimwe, and Console is a Rwandan genocide survivor. I know a lot of us, when we think about genocide, we think about it as something that happened a long time ago, but that's what makes this story so unbelievable because it happened in 1994. I was a junior in college in 1994, so that wasn't that long ago. And over the course of 100 days, Nearly 800,000 Rwandans were slaughtered by their fellow Rwandans. And just to give you a little context here, there were basically two opposing groups, the Tutsis and the Hutus. And what's interesting is they weren't ethnic groups or tribal groups. The Tutsis and the Hutus were social classes. In other words, if you saw a Tutsi and a Hutu standing next to one another, you would have no idea who belonged to which group based on how they looked or how they dressed or anything like that. The only distinguishing characteristic was how many cows they owned. So they coexisted for hundreds of years in peace. Then the Belgian colonizers came and they took control of Rwanda just after World War I. And they basically created out of thin air a division between the Tutsis and the Hutus. And they basically said that one was better than the other and one was the rightful owner of Rwanda and all of the other things that colonizers typically say to divide and conquer the native people of the land that they're trying to occupy. And what makes this story especially relevant now is that the native people of Rwanda started to believe this made up story that was told to them by the colonizers. The Hutus started to think they were better than the Tutsis and then started referring to the Tutsis as cockroaches 
and issuing death threats. And then incidents of violence started occurring. And then a wealthy Hutu man founded a radio station which started issuing pro-Hutu anti-Tutsi propaganda. And in 1994, the president was assassinated and it was blamed on the Tutsis and a call came over the radio to kill all of the Tutsis in Rwanda. And because the Hutus had become so radicalized by that point, the Hutu friends and neighbors of the Tutsis grabbed their machetes and started rounding up Tutsis and slaughtering them. Console and her family were Tutsis. She and her sister and her three brothers and her parents had to flee their home that day and their home got burned to the ground by their neighbors and so they went on a run through their small village while the people that they went to school and church with literally hunted them down like animals eventually her father and her three brothers were caught and slaughtered all by people that they knew consulate ended up being beaten and raped she contracted hiv but she and her mother and her sister survived the genocide which lasted for a total of three months during that time, they starved, they slept in bushes, in attics, and they literally dodged death every single one of those days. And now she shares her story of what happened through speeches and in her book as a means of therapy, but also to give other survivors of trauma and people who've gone through tragic situations permission to share their story and to remind us of what can happen if we start to view our neighbors as less than human because she says what happened in Rwanda can happen anywhere and what's going on right now in the United States in 2021 is very similar to what was happening in Rwanda before the genocide. Consolé's book, Test It to the Limit, a genocide survivor's story of pain, resilience, and hope recounts the gruesome details of what happened in her village and how she escaped death on a daily basis during that period. And I'm just so inspired by her resilience, and I'm honored to share Consolé's story with you, particularly because she's one of the most positive and hopeful people that I know. Hers is truly a remarkable story, and I want you to hear how she maintains her hope after all of that tragedy that she's witnessed in her short life. So please grab yourself a cup of tea and settle in for a remarkable story of survival with Consolé Nishimwe. Consolé, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's an honor to have you on here, and I, I'm really excited about sharing your story with the listeners. I want to start the conversation, as I always do, by talking about childhood. And so my, my kickoff question typically is, thinking back to little Consolé growing up in Rwanda, what was your favorite toy or activity? First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited and happy to talk to you. Thank you very much for the question. So the toy, I, wow, it was very different growing up, of course, in Rwanda. I didn't have TV. I didn't have, you know, things kids know here watching uh, cartoons or, you know, I, I, I learned all those things when I was older in my life coming here <laughs> in the United mm -hmm. States. So I was a kid growing up in the village and I used to play outside and all the toys I had, it was a ball, you know, like the balls you make. So we made them with the banana leaves. So those are the kind of toys I used a lot of with, uh, you know, and then using all these like uh, stones or 
any kinds of things, outdoor things, we had to make them as toys. But my favorite thing was was a banana leaf ball. <laughs> so you, you play with soccer, or you can play with anywhere. So kids love to play with. So that was my favorite thing. And I was very good at it, actually. I was very good at play, you know, making it. So <laughs> would you play soccer or what game did you play mostly with the banana leaf balls? It was mostly almost like base, you know, like what, what they call baseball here. Yeah. So the way you throw a ball, you, you know, you can catch. It's almost like a football, but it wasn't like football, what they call American football, but it wasn't necessarily that. Soccer, it was, uh, you know, a lot of kids, we love soccer, but I wasn't very good at it. But my dad was very good, actually. He used to play soccer when he was younger and then an adult. So for me, I just used it. You know, the girls used to play mostly like a baseball. So it was mostly like that. So it was a lot of fun for me, outdoor playing and just having muds all over your body and (laughs) losing nails and just, (laughs) it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of, and running too. We used to run a lot. So I was very active kid. Is there a trick to making a really good banana leaf ball? So you have to make sure you find the good ones. Of course, we had a lot of banana plantations all over. So you have to make sure that you find the good leaves and then you make sure it's very strong. So you have to make sure that you you put enough inside and then around it, you just make sure you, it's well, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's very strong so that it won't break. So you have to make sure you have a lot of them inside. So that's how you make it very strong. So actually, I really miss doing that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and, of course, your nails, your nails, your, your nails will be messed up. So, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. I guess this is a good time to give a little bit of context <laughs> to <laughs> the different tribal orientation, if you right. want to call it that, in Rwanda. Can you do that for us? Sure. For the people who don't know very well, Rwanda, we had two main ethnic groups, Tutsis and Hutus. And Twa was a minority. But before the colonization, of course, I don't know if we can probably dive into that. It was more about social classes. So in Rwanda, before the colonization, before we had Belgian, yeah, Germans came first and then the Belgians came after took over from Germans. So when they came in the country, we were monarchy. We were a country that had structure. It was more about social classes. If you were Hutu, a Tutsi owning, if you're Hutu and then you own more cows, you become a Tutsi. Tutsi was more about what I consider wealthy. You know, if you own more cows, you become Tutsi. So that's how people switch from one class to another. So and it was well structured and the monarchy had a certain way of ruling. So people knew how to, to live in peace and they knew how to move from one class to another and they respected each other. And there was not even like saying this one class is better than the other. And most of the time we had peace in our country. And over the years, many decades, and, and when the Belgian came in the country, because they want to take over. They wanted to rule the country. So they had to, to look at those structures and they realized these people live in peace and they know how to, to manage their, their country. 
but there's no other way we can do it without bringing our own things. So they had to use what they call divide and conquer. So divine conquer, that's when they introduced, they made sure that they had to go to the Tutsis first. Tutsis, because they were wealthy, those who were wealthy, and they put them in schools, they brought schools, they brought all kinds of great things from the Western world. And when they realized Tutsis were those they put in schools, those they made learning new skills and new things from the West, uh, Western world, they realized they were not following their rules as well as they wanted them to do. So that's how they turned to the Hutus, who were minor at the time, who were those who were Hutus in other social class, and made them feel like they are inferior. So that's how they introduced the ethnic ethnicity. And they started measuring our bodies, you know, the noses and the height. You know, there are some photos people can find online uh, seeing a Belgian measuring the nose of a person, of a man. So that's how they started saying, "We, you, you are different. Tutsis come from Ethiopia and Hutus come from another place. So they started saying we are different. We come from different places. And they made those who were already in the Hutu class and those who were Tutsis in the class, they immediately issued identity cards after measuring our heights and our nose. And after that, they, they told the Hutus at the time that Tutsis are, are going to take over if they don't protect themselves. So they started kind of bringing this division among these people who were loving each other, who cared one another. And they immediately started telling them, you are they don't like you. And after that, they because when they realized it worked, of course, they immediately made some Hutus at the time have power. And in 1959, that's when actually when, of course, the Belgium left early on. And after they realized that these two groups are already divided, they don't like each other. Immediately, when they left the country, those who were in the power, the, the Hutus were in the power at that time. They started making these incitement, the hatred they had towards the Tutsis, you know, increasing and forbidding them to go to schools, forbidding them to have actually the best, you know, they could have in the country like any other any other Hutu. So that's when many Tutsis started being murdered since 1959. And the first, uh, actually, the first king we had in the country was murdered. He was murdered in a neighboring country because he didn't want to follow the rules at that time. And he was murdered first. And then that's when we had the Republic, which was a Hutu at that time, uh, government. So, and we had many Tutsis living the country, living in neighboring countries. Some of them were murdered. That's why some who were Tutsis and Hutus had those ID cards at those times. Our ancestors, our great-grandparents were given those ID cards. So that's how we belong to one ethnic, ethnicity to, yeah, to another. So that's how I found that my family, you know, were placed in a Tutsi. And that's how my great-grandparents had those IDs. That's why my family is a Tutsi, became a Tutsi. So all those decades and many years until, you know, until I was born, and I grew up in a country, you know, knowing that we were not liked. 
and we got used to being hated and not liked. So it became a norm, which is really sad that since 1959, we got used to being hated because of who we were, simply because we were Tutsis. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You're saying that before the colonization of Belgium, mm-hmm. that there were Tutsi and Hutu, but mm-hmm. the only distinguishing characteristic was how much wealth you had. And it wasn't yes. about physicality. It mm-hmm. wasn't about mm-hmm. anything other than religion. It was just mm-hmm. about how much wealth you had. And then someone who was a Hutu could get more cows or whatever, however they measured wealth, and they could become mm-hmm. A Tutsi. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you, uh, that's absolutely, you're absolutely right. So it was measured by how many cows because actually that's the wealth. That's the wealth we had in the country at that time. Right. So because it's, arch- it's an yeah. agricultural mm-hmm. country and, and yes. that's how people would make, mm-hmm. would create wealth is through, through mm-hmm. agriculture. So right. the Europeans came along and they basically created a story mm-hmm. about where these two ethnicities came from mm-hmm. and this is these are the rightful heirs of this land and these are the invaders and they created mm-hmm. the story that mm-hmm. then created a division between the people but prior to that everyone got along everyone was happy and every, it was all good yeah if you look at some of the historical books about the uh, monarchy the kingdom we had in the early times you could see that they were well-structured. So the people, they knew how to, you know, to rule the country without worrying each other, supporting each other in the sense. So the king was really the person who everybody respected, but they didn't see him as a Tutsi. It was more about because he was a Tutsi because he was wealthy. So at that time, because he had more cows, he wasn't necessarily like a Tutsi because, because of ethnicity until 
these Europeans came in the country to change the whole system. So when you're a kid, how aware are you of your Tootsie status? Our families, when I was younger, it was not something we're talking about around the table or even our parents will, will tell me, oh, be careful, you are Tootsie. No, that was not something our parents really did. I think because our families knew that we were already targeted because we're Tootsies, they managed to make me and many Tutsis families, actually, I always have a conversation with many friends who are Tutsis. It wasn't a conversation many of them had until you were older. When you were younger, they wanted to make sure you have a normal childhood. At least you get along with your, your neighbor's kids because we were always playing with kids. All the kids are neighbors and we're all the same, even though they say that we are different. We, we look alike. We are all black. There's nothing different from my friend who, who is a Hutu. We look alike. There's nothing different from when you look at us. There's no way you can tell, you know, you can say this is a Hutu, this is a Tutsi. So I think in my childhood, it was great because my parents never brought that in the conversation. And, you know, I get along with many kids. We were all normal playing together. Of course, it came up when I was in school. I started going to school. That's when when we were asked to stand up in the classroom, in elementary school, when they were counting how many Tutsis in the, in the classroom, how many Hutus in the classroom. So your teacher already knew who you were. So that's when you realized there was something wrong. But because the way the teacher brought up your ethnicity, but at the same time, you were a kid, you never really cared very much. So until I was a teenager, that's when I realized it was not easy because the kids, of course, the the fellow classmates were, some of them bullying us because we're, especially those who come from Hutu families, they were already told that Tutis are not great. So because that's how actually the, the Hutu's family were doing in their homes, they would be, they were teaching their kids that, oh, be careful of those kids in the school, you are not the same. And, and they were teaching them hatred towards us simply because we're Tutsis. And I think many of them didn't necessarily understand why they hated us. But at the same time, we came back to being normal, being kids. And of course, but it wasn't very easy, especially in a, in a, in a junior high school. So yeah, when I was a teenager. How old were you when you got your ID card? Like how old was a typical kid in Rwanda when they got their ID card, identifying them as a Hutu or Tutsi? You get it at the age of 16 years old, but I didn't have it until after the genocide because when the genocide happened, I was 14. And of course, because my family already were Tutsis, they knew who you were. So Unless maybe I lived probably in a different province, maybe, or I ran away from a different province during the genocide, maybe somebody would not have known who I am. But because I was in the same area, they knew who who I was. So I think because Rwanda is very small, everybody knew everyone. So 
it was very easy for someone to know, oh, this kid come from this family, oh, they are Tutsis. So it was very easy. So even if you didn't have an ID card, already they knew where you, who you were. So as a kid, in any given day, as you're mm-hmm. walking around, what's the, your village called? Kibuye or something like this? The province is Kibuye, okay. but I come from a town called Rubengera, which Rubengera. is very small. Rubengera, Rubengera, Rubengera. Yeah, okay, for the people to, <laughs> to hear well the pronunciation. So it's very difficult to pronounce. But it's one of the area actually was known to lose as many people to have been persecuted a lot. The Tutsis were persecuted a lot in the area. Even before 1994, we have a lot of Tutsis who went in exile. Some of them in my family too. I didn't know when I was uh, when I was young until they told me, oh, your uncle left the country so many years ago in the 60s. So I didn't know like until they told me that some of my family members left the country because they were Tutsis. So I think our parents managed to make sure they don't scare us. It wasn't really a conversation in our household because we had a genocide in 1959, which was not a big scale. And then we had in 1973, many went in exile. So those who remained in the country were always persecuted and killed slowly, killed slowly, or sometimes they were not allowed to go to great schools, especially Tutsis were not every time you you are doing well in the school, they manage to make sure you are not succeeding or you are not even allowed to go to grade schools. Those who managed to, to even go to schools was because of they had some close friends who were Hutus who actually spoke for them. So not every Hutu was really bad. I, I just want to make sure everybody understand that not every Hutu was bad. There were some Hutus who really was against what was happening. So on an average day as a kid, mm-hmm. you're going around, you're getting bread for your mom and you're running errands and you're hanging out. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, there's no, oh, there's no yes. one you see that you don't, you've never seen before. Like everybody knows you know, everybody. In the village, it's so much easier because, and again, wherever I, I'm being sent to buy a, a bread because my parents actually like to send me to buy breads a lot. So yeah, to, um, I don't know. It's not like here, probably, you know, when you're seven years old, your parents send you to start doing things. You go out and they can send you to the small market and to buy something. So, but not heavy stuff, but you can go and do things outside. So I knew everyone because I was sent every time to go buy bread or to go buy milk or even get some small things for the household. So I knew almost everybody, you know, like you, you meet people all the time. And then my parents were teachers. My parents really taught some because they started teaching even before I was born. Some of them, my parents taught them in school or even teaching their kids. So it was very much easy to know people. So it was very much easy to know people because also my dad, having both parents in the village who were teachers, it was almost like a privilege. (laughs) Even though my parents never went to college, but somehow they, in those times, if you did well in high school, I don't know what they used to call it, but it was a little, it was like a high school diploma they got, but it allowed them to teach. And my parents were pretty much kind of like the people knew in the village because both of them were teachers. So it was considered as a big deal 
having both parents who were teachers. <laughs> so, you know, they used to say, oh, those people are rich. We're not rich. We didn't pretty much were not wealthy, but <laughs> we're not rich. But my, but the, the thing is that the, the, the Tutsis had most of it because they knew they were persecuted. They managed to take care of themselves well. Somehow many of them owned many cows. They owned many agricultural, you know, things and, you know, banana plantations and all that. And my parents really were able also to, beside, you know, being teachers, they were able to do other things like that. And they lived well. So compared to some of our, you know, some of our neighbors, I would say that somehow the country, the, the, the government didn't like the fact that Tutsis, Despite the fact they are being persecuted, they managed to also find a way to live well and take care of their, their kids. So sometimes whenever I think about it, I'm always amazed of what our, my parents, my grandparents did, because uh, thinking what they've been through, thinking the persecution they went through, and they managed to take care of us, they managed to give us a home, and it wasn't like bad. So I would eat every day. I would be dressed. I would just go to school. It was incredible, despite the fact that what they they were going through. So, but of course, everyday life for them was not very easy, but they managed to, for me and, and my siblings to have a kind of a normal, a little normal life, you know, in the house. Of course, we're not allowed to be everywhere because they knew that being a Tutsi who knows what will happen to you as a kid, wherever you're going. So, but at the same time, they were hoping that maybe things would get better in the near future, but still they never thought it would be a genocide. Of course, imagine getting used to being persecuted and never think there will be a genocide. In my head, I couldn't believe that they even believed that there will not be a genocide. So I always wonder how they never seen very much the signs that it could be something worse than what they were, they were going through. Do you remember being mm-hmm. ashamed of being Tutsi or anything like that? Like you, you mentioned that day that your teacher mm-hmm. asked mm-hmm. you all to stand up so she can count how many of you were in the, in the room. And then you went home to your parents and you, it was, you know, you told them that it made you very uncomfortable. What was your feeling about being a Tutsi as a child? It was it was a shame. It was really a shame being a Tutsi. You felt like there's something wrong with you. You were always feeling like I hope I I was something else. So it was really uncomfortable every time when it was being mentioned. So you felt uncomfortable, especially when I was uh, in in uh, in junior high school. That's when I felt really really ashamed of it because. It was, it was really a shame, some a shame. It was a shame that you carried every day, feeling like it should be something, you should be something else. But that's how they made you feel. That's how they wanted you to feel. So, and, and being my classmate, calling me names, of course, Tutis were called names. It was not only called Tutis, they were calling us snakes. <laughs> when somebody calling you a snake, it's not really good thing to, you know, it's not a great feeling. And calling you a cockroach, a cockroach, imagine a cockroach, how it looks like. Uh, it's not a good feeling. And then you hear adults saying that on the radio, because later on we had a radio, which was actually was placed to make Tutsis feel bad about themselves. <laughs> it was called uh, RTLM for those who 
will do maybe a research online, they can find RTLM was a hit radio, which was founded uh, in nineties because it was uh, it was actually a radio that was made to uh, dehumanize Tutsis. And the, the personalities on the radio were always calling Tutsis, oh, look at those cockroaches. And some of them, you know, they will dehumanize those who live abroad, those who live in a country. And they will you know, make fun of us, you know, every time. As a kid, me, I didn't understand much what they were talking about because those languages were not necessarily something I understood very well until I was older. Had to understand what they meant. They used to make themselves drunk and then they would make fun of Tutsis. So it was very horrible to hear. Every time they would speak like a name of some of the Tutsis who were known in the country, they would just make fun of them. Like as if they are not human beings. And it was one of the worst radio that really actually reached out to every person in the country because regular people are neighbors. They listen to the radio. Every person listens to the radio. Every time you hear somebody dehumanizing another human being, tell them they are the other. They are not come from the country. They are not supposed to be part of the, the society. They believed it because it started and it became a norm. And people believe that we are really not part of, we should not be part of the society. So that's how the incitement, the hatred grew very much uh, fast in the country, throughout the country. The machete, which became sort of like the, the weapon of the genocide, those are all over Rwanda. Like yeah. everybody has a yeah. machete, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, machete usually was used as part of the traditional, you know, working, you know, thing you use it on a, a everyday life, going to, you know, agricultural thing. But because of the hatred and the incitement, they actually made people feel like they can use it for something else, kill Tutsis. So, and that's how they had to actually order many machetes from uh, China. So we had uh, imported from there to come to Rwanda. Of course, those countries who were <laughs> allowing those machetes to come in the country, I'm sure they knew what was happening, but, but they didn't care very much about what was going to happen. And every person had more than one machete. So usually you will see people having a machete, one in the household, they, you know, do on daily work. Or not only the machetes, they started also making other traditional weapons, clubs, which were not really used for daily work. It was something that everybody started wondering, why people are owning this thing in their homes? Why are they making those things? It was something like... Um, like a club that was uh, made in wood. So it had nails on top and everybody used to buy it. So I remember in my neighborhood, actually, when I was young, coming from school, there was a man who used to make them. Every time people buy it, all the time, they would buy it, they would get it, they would buy it. So, and nobody knew. One time I remember asking my parents, what is that for? And, you know, as a kid being curious, what is that for? So my parents didn't know what to to say to me. So of course they had to tell me, don't worry about that. And later on, that was used as part of also of the genocide. And they give it a nickname also. They gave it a name like no pity for our enemies. That's the name of that, you know, material thing. 
every time I think about it, every every survivor always knows the image of that in their minds. It's something that will never go away in your mind. When people think that a genocide is something that happens overnight, no, it's not an overnight thing. It's well taught, it's well orchestrated, you know, planned. So in many years and people throughout the country to, to feel like they have to exterminate this group of people. It shows you the level of the hatred that was planted in the minds of people. Talk a little bit about that first mm-hmm. day that the, geno- that the genocide that you experienced mm-hmm. began when everything changed in your village. In our village, when I realized uh, things change a lot is when I've seen uh, a lot of people in our villages, in our hills, you know, leaving their homes and trying to find refuge. We were all forced to to run. And then the radio, uh, it was after the, the, the plane of the former president shut down. So they used it as a way of saying, oh, Tutsis murdered him, which was a way to to start what they have already planned. And throughout the country, we started hearing on the radio at that time that many Tutsis were living in the country, where already some of them started being murdered. And in our area, I realized in our village, when all the people were trying to flee from homes and trying to find a refuge in, in a communal office, what they call the mayor's office. And despite the fact we were being persecuted, somehow you felt like, your leader will protect you. So that's why people are going to the mayor's office. So many people really were very simple people. Living in the village, you're always simple person, always, you know, the mayor was a big deal at that time. You, you felt like the mayor will protect you no matter what. And many of them really, you know, fled their home to that place. And we were not living from, far from the communal office. And then we thought maybe we could find refuge there. And then realizing one time I realized that things are going to get worse when the homes were being burnt. The people who left their homes, you could see in the hills, in the villages, hills, the homes were being burnt down. And it was, uh, it was a terrifying thing. And when I realized also it was going to be bad, when on that radio, hit radio, they started saying, don't leave anyone. You know, all the tutsis, don't leave anyone, even young, even babies. So immediately they started also encouraging the people, our neighbors. These were our neighbors, Hutus, were not even strangers. That's when we left our homes and we, we had to, to run. And it was a scary, scary visual to see all the people running, homes being burned down, that image itself was really scary for me. So that's when I realized things were going to get worse. Than so just, thought. <laughs> just to clarify, there was no military coming through, sweeping through the yeah. town. These are, these are your neighbors and your friends yeah. your, or your, your so-called friends going around yeah. torching, torching people's homes, your yeah. mom, your dad, you have mm-hmm. a sister Two old, uh, two brothers, and then one toddler. You mm-hmm. guys all leave your house. Mm-hmm. When you left your house, you're a kid, right? So obviously, you think mm-hmm. you probably need more than you actually 
need need. So mm-hmm. did you think mm-hmm. you would be coming back to your house or did you, did your parents, were they very serious about just come right now? We got to go to the stadium or wherever you were, you were heading. You know, even though I was, uh, I was 14, but I was still a kid. I was still young in my mind. So for me, I was thinking we're going back home. I thought maybe this is for maybe a short period of time. Then we are going back to our normal houses, but things didn't, you know, happen the way I thought. But of course, I think my parents already can, I can tell my parents already were afraid. But for me, I thought maybe within a week, probably two weeks, we might go back home. But that was not the case. So already things kept escalating. And you could see every day something will happen. Every day we'll run. Of course, we had to run and then you know, kept hiding and going to the stadium, following the crowd, like you mentioned earlier. So every time it changed, every time in me, everything, you know, it changed. I realized things were getting bad, bad every time when I used to think, oh, we're going back home. Hopefully things will get better. We can go back home. As a kid, you always had, you know, a thought of kid. So I'm going back home, but yeah, things change, you know, quick. So it was so fast. Everything was really happening so fast. Then I lost the hope of going back home. So uh, until I I saw my home being burnt, it was over for me to think that I would go back home. So you wrote all this down in a book called Tested Mm -hmm. to the Limit, a genocide survivor's story of pain, resilience, and hope. And in that account, you described some harrowing situations, Mm -hmm. right? Like hiding in the bushes, yeah. Multiple nights. It was the rainy mm-hmm. season, hiding mm-hmm. in people's attics. I mean, it was mm-hmm. pretty intense. You literally were yeah. facing right. death every day and mm-hmm. usually multiple times during the day, right. overhearing people looking for the quote unquote cockroaches to kill. And, mm-hmm. and of course, again, this being a small village, everybody knew mm-hmm. everyone. So they knew you guys right. had not been killed yet. Mm-hmm. And as you got killed one by one, that word would spread, you know, what would happen to you all. So can you just talk a little bit about those conditions and how you experienced all of that in terms of your own will to survive and obviously how the death of your family affected you during that period of a hundred days? It was very hard for a teenager to face death every day and seeing people you trusted people you thought were good people because despite the fact that I was, uh, I, you know, I, I saw persecution, I never thought people were bad people. You know, I was taught to, to trust people. I was taught to love people and seeing every day being hunted and, you know, being hungry and going in the bushes and crying every day and going through all those painful things. So it was hard for me. And of course, as you said, like every time losing someone, my dad being murdered and many others, and including my brothers too. So it was so painful. It was really painful. I never thought that I was even going to survive. I never thought I was going to survive. Even thinking about it, going in my mind to see all those painful journeys I had to go through as a kid. I never imagined that I would be able even to even function <laughs> back again as a normal you know, human being again as an adult. So 
Of course, as a teenager, it was not very easy. So being hunted every day to be killed and every time you think uh, next day you'll be killed and then you see yourself alive and your family is killed. And it was very hard for me every day to think about. And also thinking in my mind that there are many people I know, friends, who have been murdered. So when I was writing my story, I was just, you know, recalling all the things I thought I was going to bury. (laughs) And I never thought I was going to go there again. Of course, I was carrying everything within myself. And it's not something I wish for anybody to really go through. So it was hard for me to to really go back to my normal self. But I fear. (laughs) You were a Christian. Your family's Mm -hmm. Christian. And there were... Hutus and Tutsis attending mm-hmm. church together. Right, right, right. And you mentioned that, ironically, the community that was most helpful for us when we were on the run were the mus- Muslim communities, and particularly Ndikizi. Is that how you pronounce the name? Yeah, Ndikizi. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? As you say, during the genocide, not every Hutu was really bad. There were some people who were so kind. And through that journey of hiding, as I mentioned in the book, there were many, many people who were able to help for a short period of time. You know, people's minds, hearts has, have completely changed. There are people who are kind, like in the Kezi, in the Muslim community, because these people were like someone like him who never allowed his heart to go into such hatred towards the Tutsi. And hid people in his home. And Muslims are really like very minority in the country. So they're almost like 1% in the country. So it's not like a big community of them. So in our area, they really managed to be kind when they realized a lot of people were unkind. And the Kizi was one of them. So he, unfortunately, we went to him later on when we lost almost everyone. It was me and my mom and and my sister. But he was so kind, even though he saw us very late, but he was able to treat us well and make welcoming us in his home and making sure we we are fed. (laughs) And he never really, really participated in the genocide. He was one of those people actually we found who didn't participate in the genocide. And he was uh, not only hiding me and my mom and it was uh, also he among other fellow Muslims in the, in the area. So they managed to hide other people, even though some of them were murdered. So I, I, I described that in the book. So I'm truly grateful for the people like him who never allowed himself to be into that kind of hatred and, you know, towards the people or the, his neighbors. So that's why I talk about him. I want to show that despite the fact that the, the hatred was being taught in the, in the country, but someone like him never allowed himself to, you know, to fall into that. So that's why I really, really wanted to mention him in the book so that people can learn from him. Unfortunately, he's, he's no longer alive. So he passed away. I wish, I wish he was alive. Hopefully one day I can maybe show him to people. But I, I will always honor him for what he did to us. And you were also a victim of sexual violence, which is one of the, the mm-hmm. one of the main tactics of the Hutus mm-hmm. 
during the genocide. It was, it was with someone who was a neighbor who lived across the street from you. Can you talk a little bit about the ramifications of that as a 14 year old? Is that the point where you completely didn't care about what happened to you? Or did you feel like you had, you were able to maintain a little bit of hope, even with all of that craziness happening? When actually, of course, um, I already, I was already painful because my, my father was murdered and my three brothers were already murdered. And every day I thought, I, I didn't know I was going to survive. So until that happened to me, rape, it was one of the worst, uh, I think, things during the genocide that happened to me. And of course, I was painful to see my, my, my family and all that. But when he added it to being assaulted and raped, and, and as a teenager, I thought, maybe there's no point for me to be alive. So, and I don't know if I really need to be alive. So I I think because it was, you know, rape, as you said, it was a weapon used during the genocide. There were so many women like myself, girls, younger. And I I actually found out some men were raped too. Not many of them talk about it. I have two friends actually who I already connected with who were also raped, they were my age mates. So they were young boys. And one of them is trying to, he actually spoke about it openly. So he's trying to write a book about it. So hopefully one day, this is not many of them. We're only women who talk about it. So I'm glad he was able to speak about it. And it was, uh, for me, I, you know, because I was young, uh, losing people, I never thought I was going to be able to, after surviving the genocide, being able to to function again, be happy and struggling with the trauma of, of that. So during the genocide, I never really hoped to be alive. I never wanted it to be alive. When the genocide is happening after being raped, it was after, actually, after the genocide, that's when I felt maybe gradually to be able to to love myself again. But in the genocide, I hoped probably I would die like everybody else. We, I thought it was going to be a new norm, you know, this a normal thing because we never thought the genocide would end. Of course, within a hundred days, so many, a million, more than a million people died. And I, I didn't, I never thought I was going to be alive. And that was not for me uh, thinking I was, there's the hope. <laughs> it was hard in the genocide. It was hard in the genocide. At the 100th day, July 4th, 1994, what happened? During those 100 days, uh, more than a million Tutsis and some Maori Hutus, but not many of them, were murdered within 100 days. Now we have more than 200, about 250, they, approximately, they said about approximately 250,000 women were raped. Of course, now we have some of them who never spoke about what happened. Like now we have some male, young male who were raped during the genocide also. And many families were completely wiped out. And in my own family, almost everybody on my dad's side was murdered. So we are only few of us who survived on my dad's side. And then luckily on my mom's side, I have, you know, this, you know, a few numbers of people who survived. And it shows you the magnitude of the genocide. It shows you 
how well prepared the genocide was. And to be able to kill the entire family, it's beyond your mind. So, and I have friends who lost the entire families and who don't have anybody survived. So I feel like I'm very fortunate because I survived with my mom and my sister. I'm very fortunate. At least we are three of us in our household when I have friends who don't even have grandparents, who don't have siblings, who don't have anyone at all who survived. And it shows you how the genocide it was so bad and how I would never wish for any country to go through what we've been through. I would never wish for anywhere, anywhere in the world, actually, to go through what we've been through. So, how, was, uh, how did the genocide end, though? What, what was the end point for it? Did some uh, foreign foreign country come in and stop it? It was, it was very unfortunate that the international community didn't do anything when the genocide was happening. But fortunately, the Tutsis who were in exile, they were able, called the RPA, RPF, they were able to stop the genocide. They were able to, of course, to fight and become, you know, a group, a soldier. So they were able to fight and stop the genocide. But of course, they had some help in the, in the way of uh, stopping the genocide. But it was very hard for them. And I would suggest people to actually follow their journey of how they stopped the genocide. It was very tough. These were women and, and men who had families in the, country, in the country who were already murdered in the genocide. And they were living abroad. Some of them were born abroad. So some of them were, they went abroad when they were younger. And these are the people who stopped the genocide. Tutsis, you know, stopping the genocide. Now they're, they managed to at least rescue some of us who were able to remain in the country. So that's how we're able to survive. I don't think I would have been survived if they didn't stop the genocide. So it would have been the end of, probably me and my family. So, yeah. So did it, did it stop as quickly as it started? Meaning, you know, your old neighbor, like everything just kind of gradually reverted back to normal and it was, everyone was pretending like nothing ever happened or what was that process like for you? It was not very easy because uh, those who committed the genocide, many of them, some of them actually ran away when the genocide was being stopped because the RPF uh, began to stop the genocide in some some part of the country, they came later on in our area. And many who committed the genocide, even some who didn't commit the genocide because they were afraid, especially the Hutus, they were afraid what happened. So what these Tutsis are going to do to them, they thought, oh, they might revenge or maybe they might do something, you know, harmful to us because of what just happened. So many of them ran away and went to neighboring countries and many at that time, when RPF stopped the genocide, it was in July, actually, at that time, because the genocide happened from April to July. And after they ended, the genocide ended in July, of course, the country, everywhere, there were bodies all over the country. Dead bodies all over because journalists, foreign journalists who came in the country have, you know, a lot of photos and videos of what, you know, how the country looked like after the genocide. And it was hard for those who stopped the genocide to actually make the country back to normal, but they had to do whatever they could. And the first thing they had to say, no revenge. 
which is hard to tell people who lost their families, no revenge. Of course, for me, I mean, many of us didn't necessarily have the, the ability to even do that because we're already painful. Many of us, you know, some of the, the, the tutsis lost their arms because they cut their arms and they, some of them lived with disabilities. And it was, uh, it probably was not going to, there were many of them were not even going to do that. But of course, they had to make sure that the Hutus who were in the country to tell them, hey, we are not here to, to revenge. We're not here to do what they just did to our people. And they had to make the country back to normal again, which took a long time. But at the same time, I'm grateful that they had to do that. Of course, as Tutis, we had we were still suffering a lot because, you know, the consequences of what just happened. So finding a new home, finding a place to live, and it was not easy because our homes were completely demolished. And imagine that. So it was chaotic, but I'm glad they had to do whatever they could to bring hope in the country. And gradually it worked. <laughs> and that's why we're able to go back to our normal lives within a year. Imagine everything was gradually coming back to normal. And even now, those who are scholars and, and have been, even other people come in the country, they couldn't believe how a country was able to go back to normal after, after what we just you know, what just happened. It never happened before any other country, so. What was your mental state like post-genocide? Oh, my goodness. You know, imagine a kid, a 14-year-old, after the genocide, I was very traumatized. And my mother was very also living with the trauma. My sister, too. And for me, I feel like, um, you know, I was, um, every day was images. All my mind, every time I'm in school, I had images going through my mind of what I've been through. But thankfully, I had a mother who was very strong, who was a very strong person, and who kept reminding me to be strong, despite the fact that she wouldn't do much what I was going through within myself. But at least she would remind me to be strong and to be hopeful. She was uh, this woman who whose kids were taken and, and slaughtered and went back to school, teach the kids similar ages of her own kids who were slaughtered. And, and some of the kids were, their families committed the genocide. And to see her having love to those kids and never show hatred or any anger towards those kids, for me, I'm truly grateful that I, I had to learn from her. So of course, I was a teenager was struggling a lot internally. So the trauma I was carrying within myself was too great to bear. But at the same time, I had that strong energy around me to hold me. So and to remind me that I should never lose hope. So and I think that really helped much, really, for me to gradually come back to, you know, slowly to get to get, you know, to starting slowly learning how to, to love life, even though it took me many years. It was a gradual journey for me. Was a part of you mm-hmm. apprehensive or skeptical about this peace staying peaceful or maybe things may flare up again? And so you're going to be hesitant about making friends with Hutus post-genocide? 
because I was young, of course, as any other survivor, you will be skeptical because you'll be thinking, oh, well, they just murdered us. Who knows what will happen next? So, so maybe something might happen. Of course, as the time went by, we realized maybe there's a hope to finding a new country, maybe where we're not being hunted again. As the time went by, that's when we, uh, I realized, okay, things is different now. And seeing myself walking on the street again, normal, without having anybody running after me, it was a huge thing for me. It was very huge and not hiding anymore. It was something that I've never thought, you know, will happen again. So, and for any, any person you talk to, it was one of those, uh, you know, seeing yourself in an open area. So you can, you can just go anywhere without worrying about anybody hunting you. It was a huge thing for me. And it took me a while to adjust with that. Did the Hutus that were around you, did they seem genuinely apologetic? Did they, did anyone say anything on a daily basis? Like, I'm so sorry about what happened. Or everyone just pretended like nothing ever happened. You know, I think for someone who committed such heinous crime, they already carry, even some of them never necessarily commit the genocide, but they were worried. Every time they would look at us, you could see the, the, the shame on their face. You could see how shameful they, they, they look. But at the same time, when the time went by, some of them were pretended. They tried to pretend they never, you know, never done anything. But because the government we had at that time was trying to reconcile, unite people, some of them were not really shame, you know, even apologetic of what they've, they've done. But at the same time, you could see in their face. Whenever you meet, you could see they're really, they know what they have done. They can't run away from their conscience. It's just, even though they were pretending to be like, you know, they don't want to apologize. And even now, some of them don't want to apologize. And it's sad for someone to, to meet someone on the street who, who knows what they've done to you. And they never apologize. So, and a few of them, of course, apologize. They felt so sad what they they've done, but a majority of them didn't do that. They actually say, "Oh, we we have taught to do this." You know, someone justifying what they did. Oh, we have we we have you know they taught us to do that. So even those who are in prison, they say that. So it's hard for for someone to change. Out of the survivors, right, there were <laughs> a lot of people who did not want to talk about what happened. They did not want to relive the trauma. You chose to take a different path. And I'm not <laughs> sure as a 14-year-old what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't a motivational speaker, someone talking about hope, someone telling yeah. a, you know, a survival <laughs> story. So yeah. take us through your process of... <laughs> being one of those survivors who decided, hey, I'm going to share this story because I think it can help people. For me, after the genocide, of course, going back to to school and all that. So in my mind, I used to think, well, if there's a way I can forget what I've been through, that would be great so that I can have a normal life and maybe, you, you know, live a normal life like anybody else. But 
of course, the, the pain and what you've been through, you can't run away from that. So like any, many survivors did that, actually, because we are very a culture where people love to talk and have conversations. But when it comes to painful things, it's not really in our culture. And for us, we thought, mm, maybe you can, I can forget about it. But it wasn't the case. So I was living with that every day. It was affecting me and a, a lot. So, But I had to do something about it. And until when I, I decided to actually start that journey of really allowing the pain I was carrying within myself to let it out. But it didn't happen just like that. It was because I came here. I don't think I would have been able to, to do it if I lived in Rwanda easily, especially talking about some of the painful things women don't talk about rape, which is something a lot of women don't talk. And I was so grateful that I came here because I started that journey of allowing myself to, you know, learning in the culture here where people you have to learn how to talk and be able to, you know, let the painful things come out of you. And when I I, I took it, um, it was like a risk, <laughs> kind of risk somehow. But then I realized, wow, it's helping me. Gradually, I was able to realize how helpful it was for me internally. So, and the pain and everything I was carrying within myself gradually came out of me. And the joy also of, of life started. And then I realized, wow, now I can, I can even have, a, I can talk about it without even feeling the shame anymore. So even that shame of, of being raped was something that I carried many years until I started talking about it. But then I wasn't the kind of a person who was really also good at talking, but I had to tell my mind that if I share, someone will understand what I share as long as I'm sharing. <laughs> so just trusting me that however I share, someone will understand me. So of course, sharing a story in a language that is not your, your first language wasn't easy. The words to use wasn't easy. And to describe some of the things from the culture to another culture, so it wasn't easy sometimes to, to you know, uh, describe what happened. But I am so grateful that I found my way to be able to, to share what, I, uh, what happened and, and help my fellow survivors. And I found that sharing my story actually has helped my fellow survivors to be able to share their own stories too. So, yeah, I never thought that I would be here <laughs> and be able, you know, to, to talk what happened. But I'm grateful that it's really making an impact. It's helping because I want our stories to be told. So I don't want us to keep our stories. So I want people to, to learn what happened and also start our healing journey, share my healing journey, what happened to me. And I think it's important maybe for even other people who go through other struggles and pain and, and I think it's stories really are part of, uh, uh, you know, stories help. Stories help. Stories help you to heal. And I think uh, storytelling is important. And I really appreciate it. every person who share what they, what has happened in the, to them in their lives. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. <laughs> I am curious, though, the, since you now live in New York City, 
looking at what's happening in America with the political divide through the lens of the Rwandan genocide, what do you see? It's been very painful to watch what has been happening in the country because when I hear the language used, it reminds me what happened. So it kind of brought me back to what we've been through. And what happened to us, it can happen to in anywhere. It starts from like this, languages and the hateful languages and all. And it was so painful for me to see that it's happening here. And I never thought in a million years, <laughs> I never thought I will see this happening here, actually. And that's why I think it's important for people to care very much about the language because the language can lead to something bad. And it's important, words have power. Words can destroy, words can heal. So, and I think it's important to care very much because this can lead to something worse. It's important to also, but, but there's a possibility also to change what's happening and making sure we, we're not going in a bad place. So, <laughs> I know that you get this question a lot and I'm just curious mm-hmm. what your thoughts on it are today. How do you stay so hopeful? That's a very good question. I get that question a lot. It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you would imagine that I, I don't have hope in humanity because of what happened. But I believe that there are so many great people in this world who don't like to see bad things happening in the world. So I have hope in humanity, despite the fact of what I've seen in my life. I'm here because, and I'm alive also because somebody decided to do something so that I can, I can have a life. And that's why I believe that all of us, that's the reason why I believe that me, you, anybody else can do something in this world we, in our own, whatever small ways we can do to change the world. So hopefully we can make it, you know, a little better than we found it. So I feel like if we all use our ability to at least to plant a seed of love, <laughs> I think the world will be better. I think there is a way you, all of us, we can encourage each other to do that. And I think the world will be better. I have hope in humanity. So it's possible. Obviously you're now on the speaking circuit. You have your book, right. you're writing, you're going to write another mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. How do you define success? I think for me, the way I see success, it's not necessarily material things. I I don't necessarily care much about, you know, material things. Of course, we have to live, we have to do things and to be able to function well. I think success is how, to me, I see it as how we look at each other. If I look at light as a human being who who is a world you know, a beautiful creation from God (laughs) and value everything you do, I think that's success to me. And and if I can value what another person is doing, as long as it's a positive thing, to me, it's success. And as long as, no, no matter how high or lower you'll see that person, everything to me makes a difference. And to me, success is my mindset. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. 
Yeah. And let's say <laughs> let's say a, a, a survivor mm-hmm. of something comes to you and mm-hmm. say they've never shared their story before, right? right. And they, they just right. come to you for advice, like, what do you think I should do? What would you tell them? I think every person is different. So if a survivor comes to me and wants to share a story, of course, I will have to understand how, you know, that person is and, and, and give advice according to how I see that person. But at the same time, you have to be authentic. And then at the same time, if you are ready, if you, if you open the door to allow the world to see what you, what, what you carry within yourself, you are opening also the door to, to healing. That's what I tell any person who comes to me or tell me, how should I share my story? And I say, well, if you open the door to sharing what you've been through, you're also opening the door to your healing journey. So it might not necessarily the way I shared my story. It could be a documentary. People do documentaries on people and then share their stories through documentaries there are so many ways to share your story. So, but if you open that door, know that there's also a door open to your healing journey and don't stop yourself for, for that journey to, to begin. It won't be easy because nothing really is easy. So that of course you have to go through the pain within yourself, but you will be able to get to a place where you are strong and you make an impact in other people's lives and the rest of like your life you have will be better. <laughs> and I think that every time I, um, I share my story or even sharing my story, I realize how it has helped even my own mom. Indirectly, I helped her heal from her own pain. So I never thought that that connection we have will also help her to heal from her own painful you know, wounds shows carrying herself, so within herself. And also it's important because when you do that, you are helping the new generation because we have have kids. Some of, you know, survivors have kids and it's a way of also minimizing the intergenerational trauma. So when you allow the healing to happen, you minimize the the next generation trauma because they, they, they suffer from also what you 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 went through so i see the kids who are born after the genocide who carry the pain of what has happened how does a survivor know that they've healed i would give an example with myself right so i've ne- i always have a conversation with fellow survivors about that so that's a good question <laughs> i realized that i was you know appreciating small things in life that I've never, you know, even paid attention many years after the genocide. When I started realizing, wow, now I love this glass of water. Now, whenever I'm (laughs) drinking water, I'm enjoying water. So I'm saying, wow, that's amazing. I, whenever I see a scar on my body, it won't make me feel like painful, like I was before. I'm embracing the scar I have on my body now. Everything I am into, I, I love it. You know, I feel the joy in whatever I'm, 
I'm doing. So, but before it was more like um, many years ago, it was like, wow, well, uh, it's about time. It's just living without living. I was living without living before. So, but then now I'm living every moment. I'm just being empathetic to other people's pain. And before I wasn't crying much, but now I cry for even a movie that somebody <laughs> broke up, broke up with someone. I don't know. I just cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Just small things. Like even my friend always, some of them tell me, why do you care very much about that? What is that? What do you care? Say, don't you see how painful he's, he's, he's suffering because they broke up? I say, why do you care? I say, I don't just feel sad. <laughs> you cry. You know, all those things that normally you would think you would never care very much or have empathy for, for, for that. So I, I, that's when I realized, hmm, I think I'm healed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I want to go back to something that we talked about at the very beginning, which was those banana leaf balls that you used to make <laughs> when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and something you said, you know, you said that the trick to making them is mm. it, to making a good one is you have to make sure that it's very, very strong it's very tight and strong so that it won't break Mm -hmm. and so obviously you know that's a part of your your journey is in finding your own resilience and then ultimately Mm -hmm. in sharing your story Mm -hmm. as a survivor as a women's empowerment advocate Mm -hmm. so that other people can be stronger and they can become more resilient in their path Mm -hmm. and so you know, I have this quote that was sort of my inspiration for starting this podcast, mm-hmm. which is a, a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Our chief desire is for someone to inspire us to be who we know we could be. Mm-hmm. And out of a lot of the people that I've interviewed, you're, you're the archetype of that quote. And I feel like oh. you do that for a lot of us and a lot of people listening to this episode. So just want thank to thank you. you very much for showing up in the way that you do. And as you say, it's not, you don't wish this upon anybody, but mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think you were specially chosen for this path to go through all the things that you've been through because you are gifted enough and talented enough to then get to the other side of that and to inspire us all just to, you know, to stay, stay hopeful and to keep going and to survive whatever moments we are all, you know, cause everybody's experiencing something, obviously more people are experiencing a lot more extreme things at somewhere on this planet, but everyone goes through something and, and it's good to know that if you could do it, then certainly we can, we can find the inner light within ourselves. So thank you for that. Appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for really having me and having a conversation with you. And I think you are doing the same. You are really helping the world and having this platform to have a conversation really means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'll put all your contact information in the show notes. And you guys definitely want to follow Consolé on Instagram. Is that your major? Is that your main social media platform, Instagram? 
or are you, are you big on Twitter or something? I'm, I'm also on Twitter, both Twitter and Instagram are, yeah, of course I use all the platforms, but I'm, I'm, I'm big on uh, Twitter and, and Instagram, so I think. And I also Beautiful. have a website. I'm, I'm still working on my website. I'm, I have a website. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you're working on now that you're really excited about? I'm working on uh, another book. Hopefully, we'll see it coming. Of course, I want to share the journey of where healing. I am and healing mm-hmm. and all that. So I want people to see that what it's been like. <laughs> the new me. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, uh, and I think it's important also to to know that there is a hope, despite the, mm. the despite the fact that you go through what you've been through, it's possible to be happy and be joyful and have hope in life. And I think it, it, it will be wonderful to share that journey as well. Yeah. And also Rwanda has become one of the most progressive countries mm-hmm. in, Afri- yeah. in Africa, actually in the world, dominated by women for the most part. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Also your Absolutely. book, Test, Test It to the <laughs> Limit is available on Amazon. So yes. they can check that out. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. All right. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Look forward to crossing paths with you again in person at some yeah. point. Soon. I would be happy to see you again. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Consule Nishimwe. You can follow her on social media at Consule which is C-O-N-S-O-L-E-E, Nishimwe, N-I-S-H-I-M-W-E. And make sure to check out her book, Test It to the Limit, A Genocide Survivor's Story of Pain, Resilience, and Hope. If you were moved by her story and you're new to the At the End of the Tunnel family, I would truly appreciate it if you would please leave a review. It only takes 10 seconds, literally, and you can help a lot of other people discover stories like Consolé's. You know what? I'll walk you through it. If you're using the podcast app, look down at your screen, click where it says At the End of the Tunnel, which is in purple, and then scroll down past all of the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and just tap the star all the way on the right. That's it. You've left a five-star review. So thank you so much. And I truly, truly appreciate you. You can also find the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Console at lightwatkins.com tunnel. While you're there, Make sure to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years. It's even being turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which will be out in May of this year. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and for sharing it with your friends and followers. I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition and keep following your heart. Peace and love. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, 
Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.